It was the will of the wisdom of God to give to a single woman, a very humble woman, a quasi-omnipotent power in order to accomplish the greatest of God's work. Our Lord God himself gives to his own mother power over God himself, power over the devil, power over us in order to achieve his greatest victories. But for Our Lady to use her power, she has to have weapons. And I'm going to speak to you tonight about her primary weapons, the primary weapons by which she accomplishes the great good of the salvation of souls. But before we get into that, first of all, we really, really have to understand what is the nature of this battle in which she engages. It's definitely not a battle between human powers, um, disputes over land or disputes over material possessions. It's a much greater battle than that. It is the greatest battle possible. It's a battle between good and evil, between the side of God on the one hand and the side of evil, of, of the devil on the other. It's a battle that has much more far-reaching consequences than uh, a, a war between two nations. That, those sorts of battles end in physical death and material destruction. But this battle results in either eternal life or eternal death. It's a battle that is much more in the spiritual realm than the material realm. This is the battle in which Our Lady is engaged. She's assigned to fight in and to win in. It's so striking today that, that religion has gone so far astray that today the things that are often battled for in religion are such things as ecological justice, rights, supposed rights over your body, or rights to choose your own sexual orientation, or rights to choose your own religion or your own way of worshiping God. These are the sorts of rights that, that are fought for in the name of religion, in the name of God. But Our Lady is precisely fighting against such rights because those rights really do not exist. The rights that we have come to us from God, and he gives us no right to go against his design for our nature or his design for our supernature, for our path to our goal of heaven. There are no such rights. The battle is really for immortal souls that have been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it really is these two cities that were described by St. Augustine, where on, on the one you have the city of man elevating himself up to God, city of selfishness, and on the other, the city of man submitting himself to God, defending the rights of God, being faithful and loyal to God. But what is striking is, as we saw yesterday, that 
is that, that God chooses to make the general of the armies for the one side a woman, the Blessed Virgin Mary. She is the one who he has assigned to face off against not just the devil, but all that the devil represents, really all evil. Our Lady faces off against all evil because she was the most humble of his creatures and the most conformed to his will. And it's, it's so important that, that we see this battle, that, that we, we look past the little sound bites that we receive through our news feeds, the, the sort of constant stream of, of news about current events that, that really washes over us with such great frequency and too, too much information today that we're able to see that behind all this, uh, these appearances of, of struggles between humans, what is really going on is a battle for souls, a battle for immortal souls, where on, on one side you have the Blessed Mother seeking to fill the empty places in heaven to give eternal life to her children, and on the other, you have the enemy of the human race, the devil, who wants to cause the eternal damnation of as many people as possible. That's what's really going on. That's the battle that you have to want to be engaged in. That's why you want to ally yourself, place yourselves under the banner of the Blessed Virgin Mary and fight for her cause in your life. Because that is the only battle worth fighting for. If we're not fighting for that battle, if we're not seeing that battle, if we don't see the supernatural level in our life, then our faith is dead. This is why we, we defend our Mass. You know, this is what Father Pagliarani mentioned in, in his letter in response to the, the motu, pro, uh, motu proprio of Pope Francis. He says, you have to be ready to defend this Mass with your blood. Because our souls rest upon going to this Mass, having this Mass. If we don't have this Mass, we lose our souls. The evidence is there. The statistics are there. We've, we've had the Nova Soto Mass for, for half of a century now. And the result is a very great loss of souls. So if we are to engage in this battle with our general, our lady, we do so by being close to her and by using her weapons throughout our life. We use her weapons we, in, in that closeness, especially that closeness, that living in dependence upon her. That is what the consecration to our lady is all about. You live as far as possible in your daily life in a state of dependence upon our lady, referring things to her, asking her for the things that you need, praying to her. That is how you really conduct the battle against evil. You become holy. You become holy. If we are to participate in this battle, we have to live in that state of dependence. We have to try to promote her interest as far as possible. And I just want to explain to you how the weapons that you use 
that I'm sure you all use on a regular basis just to remind you that these weapons really are powerful, that if you are engaged in this spiritual combat for souls, that you don't just have the perspective of our, our, our little world here, but, but also the, the grand view, that grand view of the battle between good and evil that will go on until the end of the world, that you will engage yourself in this battle with a great enthusiasm. I want to remind you how powerful, firstly, how powerful the Hail Mary is. The prayer of, of the Hail Mary. Why do we pray this, this prayer over and over again? How many times do you pray this prayer every single day? You know, 50 times, 100 times you say this prayer. People would look at Catholics and it's like, what are you doing? You're, pray, you're just repeating yourself mindlessly, saying this prayer over and over and over again. Why are you doing that? The answer is because it's powerful. It does damage to evil. It conquers. It was by the Hail Mary that the whole world was restored. What we are trying to do in the Hail Mary is to go back to that moment where God intervened into history in order to restore the human race, in order to defeat the devil. Every time we recite the Hail Mary, we go back to that moment of the words of the angel Gabriel announced to Our Lady. And he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And by doing so, we, we sort of resource that power, that grace that came at that first moment of the restoration of the world. The prayer recalls the beginning of the process that led to the destruction of the devil and to the overturning of evil in our world, the overturning of sin. That's why we come back to it over and over again. That first moment is never going to change. That moment of the Annunciation, that moment of the angel Gabriel coming to Our Lady is a, is a fact fixed in reality that cannot and will not be changed. So we come back to it again and again and again and find there those graces that are so necessary, not just for the first century, the second century, but the 21st century. Just as the salvation of the world began with the Hail Mary, says St. Louis, so the salvation of each individual was bound up with it. This prayer brought to a dry and barren world the fruit of life. And if well said, will cause the word of God to take root in the soul and bring forth Jesus, the fruit of life. Something that's very beautiful about the Hail Mary is that it mentions the name of Our Lady twice and the name of Jesus once. You know that during the course of the liturgical year, we have a feast day for our Lord's name and we have a feast day for Our Lady's name. Why do we celebrate a feast for somebody's name? It's because of the fact that, that God has willed to invest not just in the person of our Lord and our Lady, but even in the mere mention of their name. 
a certain power. You know how in the Acts of the Apostles there's this very humorous scene where some people who were not really qualified are trying to, to cast out devils, and they, they are basically ridiculed by the devil um, because they don't have the proper credentials. But meanwhile, the apostles, they go around and they cast out devils in the name of Jesus. And they baptize people in the name of Jesus. And it's through this name that grace is conferred upon souls. So too, with the name of Our Lady, with the name of Mary, at which the priest is commanded to bow his head every time he comes across that name in the Mass. God is willed to attach to that name a certain power, a certain power to conquer evil, to conquer the evil inside of you, if you call upon that name in a time of temptation, to conquer evil in the world as well. So you repeat that name, Hail Mary, Holy Mary, every time you pray the, the, the Hail Mary. And so you bring it down graces upon yourself. Let me mention as well how, how important it is for us to try to have the practice of reciting the Angelus. Because of the power of that moment, the, power, the, the moment of the Annunciation, when the beginning of our redemption commenced, we bring that back to our mind over and over again. Whenever we pray the Angelus, we relive that scene of the angel Gabriel coming to Our Lady and announcing our redemption and God descending upon earth, the Word becoming flesh, at the Word of Our Lady, saying, Be it done unto me according to thy Word. Similar to the words of consecration at Mass, but in a sense even more powerful, our Lord becoming incarnate in Our Lady. You see how the Church wants us to go back to that moment over and over again. We should never tire of going back to that moment because that, as I say, is the beginning of the destruction of evil. And of course, in the Rosary, what we do is, is we weave together as a sort of crown. Hail Mary, after Hail Mary, after Hail Mary. So if, if one Hail Mary in itself is so powerful, what will not multiple Hail Marys, so many Hail Marys, 53 Hail Marys in a Rosary, how powerful will that not be? It's kind of striking that that's, Our Lady did not reveal this devotion until the 13th century to St. Dominic. As I mentioned last night, from the perspective of St. Louis, it's, it was God's will that Our Lady's influence increase over time. So she waited 1,200 years before she revealed the recitation of the rosary to St. Dominic. And it was at the time when there was a terrible heresy ravaging France that originated in the town of Albi. And the people from Albi were called Albigenses, the people of Albi. And their heresy was called Albigensianism. And St. Dominic was trying to preach um, against the Albigensians. He was using spiritual means. He was praying and he was preaching. But he wasn't having much success, wasn't conquering them. 
And Our Lady appeared to St. Dominic, and she said, Dear Dominic, don't you know what weapon the Holy Trinity wants to use to reform the world? And St. Dominic said, Dear Lady, I mean, you, you would know better than I would what the answer to that question is. She said, I want you to know that in this kind of warfare, the warfare I've been talking about, the battering ram has always been the angelic psalter, which is the foundation stone of the New Testament. Therefore, if you want to reach these hardened souls and win them over to God, preach my psalter. We didn't always call the rosary the rosary. Originally, it was called the Psalter of Our Lady because the complete rosary, joyful, sorrowful, glorious mysteries, are made up of 150 Hail Marys, the, the same number of psalms that there are in the Psalter. So our Lord has his Psalter and the priest, uh, the four priests here, the, you know, the, the, the priests who pray the traditional breviary every week, we pray the 150 psalms. We go through each each of the psalms in the course of the week. And that is the divine office. We pray with the intention of, of praying with the same dispositions as our Lord prayed here on this earth. And you also have Our Lady's Psalter. It's, it's like the equivalent of the divine office for Our Lady. And just as the divine office is prayed by religious, and there are special graces attached to that. So too with the rosary. The brothers of the Society of St. Pius X, the Archbishop Lefebvre asked the brothers of the Society of St. Pius X to pray the 15 decades of the rosary every single day. And that's, that's part of their duties of state, to pray the, the complete rosary for the church, just as the priest prays the divine office for the church. So it was originally called the Psalter of Our Lady, but later on it was changed to being called the Corona Rosariae, or the crown of, of, the, of, the rose, of, of roses. Because there was, there was a young man who was uh, very devout, and he used to adorn a picture of Our Lady with, with roses. Um, and then one day Our Lady appeared to him and when he would say a Hail Mary, a rose would come out of his mouth. And as he, every time he would say a Hail Mary. And so <clears throat> by the time he had recited the whole rosary, there was like a complete crown of roses. And we don't know if the story was legendary or, or, or true, but um, as a result, we call the rosary the rosary. A crown of roses. Rosary just means a crown of roses. We, we weave a crown of roses for Our Lady. So St. Dominic, upon the instruction of Our Lady, he preached the rosary and he managed to put down the Albigensian heresy as a result. In one of the documents of Pope Benedict XV, not the 16th, but the 15th, the Pope who succeeded Pope Pius X, Pope St. Pius X, he said the following about this episode in the history of the church. He said, Loving the Blessed Virgin as a mother, confiding chiefly in her patronage, Dominic started his battle for the faith. The Albigenses 
among other dogmas, attacked both the divine maternity and the virginity of Mary. He, attacked by them with every insult, defending to the utmost of his strength the sanctity of these dogmas, he invoked the help of the Virgin Mother herself, frequently using these words, Make me worthy to praise thee, sacred Virgin. Give me strength against thy enemies. How pleased with this heavenly queen, with her pious servant, may be easily gathered from this, that she used his ministry to teach the most holy rosary to the church, the spouse of her son. Our Lady gave the rosary to St. Dominic for the purpose of the defense of the church. That was the primary purpose. The church is the spouse of our Lord, and Our Lady wants to defend the interests of the church. And so she gives this great weapon, the rosary, to St. Dominic and to the church itself, to us, to use against the enemies of the church. And there's any time that needs defense of the church. It is definitely our times when we're suffering the worst crisis in the whole history of the church. We need the rosary more than ever because of the very, very sad, terrible state that the church is in. It's not Father Robinson making this up. I, I want to quote to you Pope Leo XIII in one of his many rosary encyclicals which he wrote every year in the month of October, in the month of the Holy Rosary. So the one he wrote in 1883, he said the following, The Rosary was instituted chiefly to implore the protection of the Mother of God against the enemies of the Catholic Church. And as everyone knows, it has often been most effectual in delivering the Church from calamities. So I just want to give you one example, the most beautiful example that we have of the power of the rosary to defeat the enemies of the church. Most beautiful example because this episode in the life of the church represents a very great faith on the part of those who are praying the rosary at that time. A faith that, that we need to try to imitate today in 2021. And it also shows something that is, that is likewise very important for us to understand, that the true Catholic spirit is a militant spirit against heresy, against the enemies of the church, against those who fight against the rights of God. We are engaged as Catholics not just to, to save our own souls, but to battle for the rights of God and his church. Of course, I'm talking about the Battle of Lepanto. Tomorrow, October the 7th, 2021, is the 450th anniversary of the day on which that great battle was fought. It was fought on October the 7th, 1571. What an incredible event it was. So the event happened at a time that was so different from our own. At the time, at, in 1571, there was something that existed that was called Christendom. And what Christendom meant 
was that there were city-states that professed themselves to be Catholic and had as their primary interest the salvation of souls and the promotion of the interests of the Catholic Church because they believed that that was the very best thing for mankind. The best thing to do to promote human interests was to promote the interests of the Catholic Church. And so you had all these Catholic states, and they had some sort of alliance. You know, like today they have, they have the European Union, where you try to sort of merge together these secular democracies and, democracies and have them cooperate in some way. Well, back then they had Christendom, or France, and Germany, and Spain, and Italy, Belgium, all these, I don't think Belgium existed, it existed in the 1800s, but, but all these Catholic countries banded together, and whenever the faith was being attacked, they fought. They fought wars against the enemies of the faith to protect the interests of the church. But in 1571, this was already breaking apart. As you know, Luther pounded his 95 theses uh, against the, the door of the church in Wittenberg in 1517. So 54 years had passed. By 1571, there was a Protestant revolt that was causing division among Catholic countries. Catholic countries were also becoming very nationalistic, where they would look to their own political interest above the interests of the Catholic Church. And then there was a saint, St. Pius V. And he was saying, there's these horrible problems with Protestantism, but there's another major problem, the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, who are growing in military power and who are threatening to wash over Europe. You know that in Spain, it took, it took 700 years to expel the Muslims from Spain. It wasn't done until 1492. And here we are in 1571, less than 100 years after that. And they're threatening again. And it seemed like the Pope was the only one who understood the threat. Because he was calling these Catholic nations, he was saying, let's form a league. Let's band together our military forces and fight against the Muslims. And they were not interested. They were not interested. But finally, because of his great efforts, he was able to get Spain and Genoa to agree to band together. Just two nations. You know, Italy didn't exist back then. There was the Papal States, which was governed by the Pope. The Pope was a secular leader as well as a spiritual leader. Church never had any problem with that. They wanted the Pope to be independent from any nation. So he would not people would not feel like, okay, he's a French citizen, for instance, and therefore he's going to be partial to the French, or he's a German citizen and he's going to be partial to the Germans. No, he had to be politically independent, and one way of doing that was for him to rule his own country. So the Pope ruled the Papal States, which is like the, the center of Italy, and there was Genoa, had its own sort of state in Spain, they decided to band together. Venice was reluctant 
to offer the help of its galleys because of its commercial interest. Um, at the time, the Queen of England was Elizabeth. She was Protestant. She definitely wasn't going to help out the Pope. She was probably praying that the Muslims win. France had already been compromised by its trade agreements with the Muslims. And in Marseille, they were even um, giving oars or selling oars to the Turkish Navy. So they're helping the, the, the Turks get resources, material resources, by selling oars for them to equip their, their ships with. Eventually, Venice did join the League, but that was only at the preaching of St. Francis Borgia. There was another saint around who helped encourage this League, just as you, you know the, the Crusades were preached by saints. So St. Pius V, what did he do in preparation for this battle? He relied so much upon the power of the rosary. He ordered the devotion of 40 hours to be extended over three days with public processions during which the rosary was recited. And he placed the whole expedition under the patronage of Our Lady on the title Queen of the Holy Rosary. And this devotion, I mean, you know, these, these ships... Of, of, the, of the Christian League. They were, they were full of rough men, soldiers, and so on. But perhaps the most devout men in the history of, of warfare because um, the devotion was practiced daily. The devotion of the rosary was practiced daily in each ship. Um, the, the beads of the rosary were given. Every single soldier was given a rosary to pray. So finally they got their fleet together and they assembled it on September the 16th, 1571. And they, they brought the, all the ships to a certain point and they dropped their anchors and they were, they were all there. And when they did that, they prayed the rosary. And there was one of the, the galleys, there were some certain ships called galleys, it was named Victoria. Um, and there was a legate there and he gave the apostolic blessing to 65,000 men who all, all knelt for this apostolic blessing before they, they went out to engage the Turks in battle. And at that time, Don Juan of Austria, who was assigned by the Pope to be the admiral, um, the general of, of this battle, he commanded his soldiers to do a three-day fast. Obviously, this is not something that you would normally do if you were having soldiers. You would want your soldiers well-fed. But he wanted to use spiritual weapons. He confided in spiritual weapons. And the, there, were, there were so many priests of different orders, the Dominicans, the Theatines, the Jesuits, the Capuchins, the Franciscans. They all heard confessions. Um, the prisoners who had been rowers in the galleys were released. And as they say, we're given rosaries. Everyone, absolutely everyone, it was a requirement that if, if you wanted to fight in this battle, you had to go to confession. You, there, there were nobody allowed who was considered to be a bad character. And there were chaplains on each ship. It was truly a picture of the ideal of Christian warfare. Um, you think about the, the great Old Testament stories of like the Maccabees going, going out to battle and relying 
on their faith in God or, or Moses, you know, sort of holding up his arms while the Israelites fought against their enemies. There's something very similar here. It's a picture of men who are fighting against great odds. The, the, the Turks had many more ships than they did, but they trusted primarily in their spiritual resources that God was on their side. Because if he was, it didn't matter what material resources they had. So they assembled the fleet on September the 16th, and they started cruising around trying to find the Turks, and it took three weeks. It was on October the 7th, which that year fell on a Sunday. It was a Sunday morning, and they encountered the fleet of the Turks. As they say, they were greatly outnumbered. As soon as they approached the fleet and they knew this was it, this was the day where they'd have their battle, the, the priests on the ships, they gave a general absolution. This is, this is one of the rare occasions when you can do a general absolution. You know, in the Nova Sorta, they do it all the time. But this is one of the rare occasions when you do a general absolution. There's no time to make your confession. So you just kneel now and make an act of contrition, and the priest gives you absolution. When they were going against the fleet, the wind was against them. You know, you're, you're at a disadvantage. If the wind is in your face when you're, when you're on these ships because you are moving very slowly, you're, you're very slow, and they're very fast, and they can just cruise by you and just blow you up if you don't have, if you have the wind in your face. Um, you're going in slow motion, they're going very quickly. So the wind was in their face when they started. But very shortly thereafter, the wind turned to the advantage of the Christians. And even some of the Turks themselves said it seemed like heaven was fighting for them. At 4.30 p.m., the Turks surrendered. They had lost 240 ships, 33,000 men, whereas the Catholics had only lost between 7,000 and 8,000 men. And in the process of defeating the Turks, they had freed 15,000 Christians because, of course, the Muslims had the practice of enslaving Christians and and making them row their their ships. Their first care was to pray for the dead. Their second was to send these messengers to Rome to notify them of the battle. And it's, it's striking. There was a great storm that happened afterward. There's terrible weather after this battle. Um... And the messengers didn't arrive in Rome till two weeks later. But you probably know that the Pope did not need a messenger. As soon as, as the victory was happening, he was, he was in his study with his pontifical treasurer. And it's probably as I, I can sympathize, you know, he's, he's talking about some very uh, mundane and, and practical but necessary affairs in, in, uh, to, to run the church, his pontifical treasurer was named Basoti, when he just got up suddenly and he, and he opens the window and he, he just looks at the sky for a few moments and he says, this is no time to talk of business. Let us thank Almighty God that our army has gained a great victory over the Turks. And then he went before the Blessed Sacrament and knelt there for a few hours. So ever since that great victory was achieved that Sunday has been hallowed by the church. 
that first Sunday in October. And what we have to see today in the world that we live in is that the world really, really lacks such fighters today. I'm not talking about people like Cervantes, you know, who is one of the members of, of the Lepanto League and was fighting on the ship. I'm not talking about soldiers. I'm talking about people with faith who believe that God has entrusted Our Lady with a great power to defeat the devil and that the rosary is her great weapon. And if we pray the rosary, then we can achieve great spiritual victories. The fight of the devil against the devil has to continue, but there's so few people to continue the battle. You might know that one of the very distressing things that was done by Paul VI is he actually took one of those flags from the admiral's ship of, of the Muslims, uh, from the ship of Ali Pasha. He took the flag in 1965, which had been kept as a sort of treasure trophy, this great victory over the enemies of God in Christendom, and he gave it back to the Muslims. He gave them the flag that we had captured as if to, to, to say, we do not do that anymore. We are not going to fight against you anymore. We are not going to fight against Islam. We are not opposed to you. We are not a militant religion. We do not fight against false religions. We get along with false religions. But what do you think about the power of the rosary? Does it still have the same power today that it had back in 1571? No, it doesn't have the same power. It has more power than it had back in 1571. That's what I've been trying to explain. That the, the power of Our Lady is meant to become more manifest over time. So the rosary actually has more power today than it had back then. This is again what Pope Leo XIII said in another of his encyclicals in 1894. We shall take the opportunity of pointing out the particular ruling and designs of providence which ordain that the rosary should have new power to instill confidence into the hearts of those who pray and new influence to move the compassionate heart of our mother to comfort and generously help us. So the Society of St. Pius X, I mean, we've always, of course, promoted devotion to the rosary, but at a certain point, Bishop Fillet decided that, that we were going to start having crusades. We are going to start using this language, this military language, start having cruc- rosary crusades. Um, this was, I think maybe the first one is in 2005 or 2004, I can't remember. But so many, we've done so many rosary crusades since that time. We've been doing them over and over and over again. Why have we been doing it? Because it works. It works. Because the rosary is powerful to accomplish the things that we need in our time, which is, which is the, the safety of the church, the defense of the church, the restoration of the church. It was because of the rosary. I mean, at the time of 2007, when Pope Benedict XVI granted our request, it was a request of Society of St. Pius X to give freedom to the traditional mass, what did we attribute it to? To our rosary crusades. And in 2009, when he 
said, well, he lifted the, the, the excommunications against the four bishops. What do we attribute it to? To the Rosary Crusades. Because we had Rosary Crusades for both of those things. And since then, we've had so many other Rosary Crusades. Look at the state of tradition right now. You, you know that last year we had a Rosary Crusade, and it was, it was because of COVID and all that. But tradition is booming right now. Tradition is doing better in 2021 than it's ever been, certainly in my lifetime. Tradition is the end thing in the church right now. And I think it's because of the millions of rosaries that we've been praying over the past couple of decades. Well, maybe it's 17 years, 16 years, however long it's been. All these rosaries that we've been praying, I'm sure you've participated in a lot of them. You've, you've done your tally sheets, you know, to indicate how many you've prayed so we can count them up. But the fact is that the rosary, by the will of God, God can use any means he wants. He can use any weapon. If you're a supremely powerful agent, you can use anything you want to accomplish the effect you desire. And God wills to use the rosary. We see that the saints, the, the great saints, they prayed so many rosaries. Um, you know, Padre Pio, I, I try to find how many rosaries he said today. People don't agree. Some say he said 16. Some say he's 36. Some say 70 rosaries. Um, I don't know. But he prayed a lot of rosaries every single day because he knew of its power. He said it was the prayer of those who are victorious. So this is the great weapon of Our Lady, especially in this month of the Holy Rosary. Let us pray more than, than one rosary. You should pray the rosary with your family every night. But even if you can pray a few decades, a few extra decades, or even the 15 decades each day, have in mind the welfare of the church. Our Lady needs soldiers in order to help restore the church. Who is going to do it? There's so few people today who even see, recognize that there is any spiritual battle whatsoever. You have the faith. You see the supernatural level. Enlist yourself in her army. Pray these mysteries of the rosary for the defense of the church.